Christians get angry at those who sin differently than they do. How often do we confront someone with a sin that we know we, uh, that we wrestle with? No way. But it's some, a sin different than ours. That's where we can have a moral superiority. Rather than lovingly, yes, we still need to call out sin. When we confront someone about sin, the goal is always, it's, it's not condemnation, it's restoration. Back to the heart of God who loves them and wants to bring change into our lives. Hello, and welcome to the FBC Sermon Podcast. Today's sermon is entitled, Shame, and was based on John 8, 2 through 11. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. You matter to God. But do we really believe that? Have we allowed it to soak in? Are we experiencing how much God passionately loves us? And how much, no matter who we are, where we come from, what our life experiences, that we matter to God? Because it can be extremely challenging, can it? Especially if we've had life experiences like maybe we've grown up in a family where we felt like we were just never quite good enough and we never quite fit in. Or maybe some of us have been rejected in a relationship and it can be difficult to believe that in the rejection that we've received that God doesn't reject us, but that God really loves us and we really matter to God. Or maybe we've had some shame in our past and it's shaping the way we view ourselves today. Or maybe we just can't compete with what we see on social media, right? And also remember, Christmas card season's coming. And you know what that means? I mean, this is well-intended and it's often beautiful, but families will send that Uh, the card with their letter with all the pictures and the stories and we read it and we think oh man all they do is play and have fun and they look beautiful their hair there's never one out I mean they're perfect and 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 their kids like the kid turned down Harvard because it wasn't good enough whatever like that right and you're like oh we don't we don't measure up do we or maybe for some of us we've been dehumanized because of racism And those messages are still in our minds and filling our emotions. Or maybe some of us have been hurt in a church. And we think, wow, I have a hard time reconciling what the hurt I've experienced in a church with a God who says that I matter. It's also important because it means every person we meet matters to God. Even if the way that they're living their lives or some of their moral construct or the way they vote or the way that they interact with us has hurt us, wounded us, bothered us, they matter to God. We're in our sermon series, When You Feel Like Giving Up. And this morning, we come to the story of a woman who must have felt like she didn't matter to God and she knew she didn't matter to the people who were interacting with her. And because of it, she was filled with shame. I think shame can be one of the strongest emotions that can damage our lives and destroy our faith. So will you join me in John chapter 8? Now, for those who are here in the house, it's on page 1059 of the Blue Bibles. Uh, For those of you who are worshiping online, we're one church community in the house here and online. Uh, Cue up in uh, your device or your Bible, John chapter 8 page 1059 in the Blue Bibles. Now, you may notice that this passage, this story, this episode is often bracketed off or it's in italics. And there's a footnote that this story wasn't in some of the oldest, you know, written manuscripts of the New Testament. 
And the reason for that is, remember that scribes hand-wrote copies of Scripture for the first 1,500 years after Jesus until the printing press. And so there's this discipline called textual criticism that is basically getting back to the original text, which we can have confidence. We have, you know, a 99.5% accurate to the original text, okay? Uh, but this story, which we know is, is biblical, we know uh, is historical, kind of moved around a little bit. So sometimes it's here in John 8. In some manuscripts, it's a couple of other places within John. And it even shows up in the Gospel of Luke in, in a few texts. And so um, there were some scribes who weren't quite sure where this went. We also wonder maybe if there were some scribes or maybe one or more scribes who said, ooh, this story, people could interpret this as like uh, kind of accepting of adultery. I'm not sure what to do with this. So I just wanted to explain when you see something like that, that's what it is. But we can be confident that this is Scripture. We're not sure if it was originally here. I think that's a good candidate for it to being here, and we'll see why, because it fits beautifully, uh, kind of abruptly, with the flow of John 7 to John 8 and the beginning and end of John 8, which we'll look forward to. Our, hey, by the way, thank God for those scribes. For a couple thousand years, in the Hebrew Scriptures and then the New Testament, who sat probably often in cold, dimly lit rooms, you know, bent over with their quill and their handwriting scripture. I wonder if some of them felt like, does my life really matter? All I'm doing is handwriting the scriptures. And yet because of them, because of their labor, we have accurate scripture today. Amen? Those are heroes of faith behind the scenes. Whatever our calling, God uses us for his glory. All right. Uh, John chapter 8, join me in verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts, and uh, where, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Now, here's what's amazing about this. Here is God in the flesh. Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh. And when God visited the planet, God in the flesh, Jesus, sits in the temple courts among the people and shares with them and relates with them and laughs with them, and cries with them, and teaches them. Isn't that beautiful? Do you know in human history there's no other deity who's ever claimed to become human other than to rape or pillage humanity? Think about it. What, what, what other religious system has a deity who came to earth and became one of us, sat with his, among his people to connect, to relate with people, and then to sacrifice his life? For people, that's why Jesus is unique. That's why I love Jesus. It's also interesting because the end of John chapter 7, we find that the temple police are searching for Jesus. They're searching to arrest him. He eludes them. And so what does he do? Does he withdraw from Jerusalem and go hide? No. What happens? The next morning, he's back in the temple courts and he's teaching. And the reason is Jesus has the courage to fulfill his mission. See, Jesus wasn't the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time who got caught. Oh, there's this martyr who we honor. No. Jesus knows that his mission is ultimately going to end up going to the cross. So there he is back again, sitting among the people, teaching. And there's this amazing episode that happens. Uh, verse 3. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand before the crowd and they said to her, Teacher, this woman's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, I have a few questions for the Pharisees. Let's just, 
Let's just chat with the Pharisees a minute and kind of ask them a few questions. First of all, how'd you catch this woman? In the act of adultery? Wait a minute. Doesn't this sound like maybe kind of a sting operation in order to trap Jesus? Because what kind of guys are these? Right? And the second thing is, why are they doing this in public in the temple courts? And the reason is they're shaming this woman. Remember, this is an honor-shame culture where shame is, is about the worst thing that can happen to you is when you're shamed. And they're shaming this woman. And they're doing it publicly to trap Jesus. And the third question which I would ask is, where's the man? Because when you read Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, when there is a, a, a confronting adultery, it's the man and the woman. There has to be two witnesses, and there have to be a lot of details, okay? So here's what's tragic. See, the Pharisees, they don't really care. They don't really care about God's law because they're breaking God's law in order to trap Jesus. They don't really care about this woman because they're not confronting her to, to, to see that there might be change in her life. Instead, they're using her for their purposes. They have a moral superiority. But let's remember this. Before we have any moral superiority, because let's remember the law of God, the Old Testament law, was created not so we could somehow achieve it and then feel like we have moral superiority. The purpose of the law primarily was to confront us with the fact of I could never perfectly fulfill this law. God, I need you. I need redemption. I need salvation. So they've totally confused it, and they have a moral superiority over this woman. But let's remember this. At the foot of the cross, all moral superiority is blown away because we all come as hungry beggars. We all come as people who have strayed away from God's perfection. We all come as people who are tainted by sin, who are depraved, damaged, broken. And there's an equality at the foot of the cross. We're all lost and broken. And we're all coming seeking for the salvation and the healing and the hope and the transformation, the justice that Jesus can bring. It's fascinating because in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey writes this, Christians get angry at those who sin differently than they do right? How often do we confront someone with a sin that we know we, uh, that we wrestle with? No way. But it's some, a sin different than ours. That's where we can have a moral superiority. Rather than lovingly, yes, we still need to call out sin, but in a way which we'll talk about sin, lovingly to help gently restore someone. See, we never confront sin for condemnation. Ah, I was right. You're condemned. That's pharisaical. When we confront someone who we earn the privilege relationally, when we confront someone about sin, the goal is always, it's, it's not condemnation, it's restoration. How they respond is up to them, but it's helped to restore them back to the heart of God who loves them and wants to bring change into our lives. Now, let's come back to the woman, because that's who this passage is about, Jesus and the woman. And that's, let's just imagine ourselves in her place. We'd be filled with terror, wouldn't we? I'm going to die feel hopeless. There's nothing I can do to change this. We'd be filled with regret. You know, if, it, if I wouldn't have done those actions, I wouldn't be here. There's regret. And then there's shame. Because it's happening publicly before people from our own community. Life will never be the same again. 
It may not be quite as graphic of a scene, but don't we all wrestle with some of those same themes? Don't we all sometimes feel like we're overwhelmed by fear? Or a situation can feel hopeless? Or we regret some things that we've done? Or we wrestle with shame? Let's see how Jesus ministers to her and calls out the Pharisees. Verse 5, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question to trap Jesus. Now, this is actually a clever trap. You've got to give the Pharisees credit, okay? Because they have thought through this well, okay? Because Jesus really only has three options, at least human options, right? And the first is to stone the woman, to say, yep, that's what the law says. All right, guys, get, get your stones. Yeah, get some big ones. Here we go. But what happens then? First of all, remember, this is publicly happening. All of his followers, wait a minute, Jesus, what about that message of love and grace and hope that you preach? I guess that's not real. And they know that. It would also be breaking Roman law. Remember, this is an occupied nation. Jesus couldn't call a death sentence. If he says yes, the empire will arrest him. Clever trap. Second option Jesus has is, don't do it. Hey, hey, I know she's broken the law, but you know what? Let's just overlook this. But that means Jesus is breaking God's law, which disqualifies him from being the Messiah. Because remember, have you ever wondered why the Old Testament law, the Hebrew law, why are we not under law? Why are we under grace? Did Jesus just say, ah? But remember, the reason is because Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus perfectly fulfilled all the law, and because of that, it's credited to us in Christ, and so the law is set aside. And I don't mean the moral implications of the law, but all the details of the law were really meant to drive people to see, oh, I need a Savior. And Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. It's credited to us. Isn't that beautiful? So now we're not under law, we're under grace, which has a higher calling. I mean, Which would motivate us more? All right, I'll obey this law because it's God's law. Or, wow, Jesus gave his life to rescue me. Relationally, I have a high calling to represent Jesus well, to love him and to love people. That's a greater motivation, isn't it? And it might call us sometimes to even greater sacrifice to follow Christ. Finally, the third option is just to decline. I'm not getting involved. Then Jesus is allowing a woman to be killed. And once again, for him, but also for all of his followers, like, Jesus, wait a minute. You're just going to stand by and let this out? This is a clever trap, isn't it? You know, C.S. Lewis once wrote, when you argue with God, you argue with the one who gave you the ability to argue. Not a good idea to argue with God, is it? And of course, how does Jesus address this? He addresses it with the gospel. Move to verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. But when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, you know, let any one of you who's without sin, go ahead and be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped on the ground and began to write again. Now, first of all, why did Jesus write on the ground? Now, we're not sure. So this is one of those times, I say this often, this isn't thus saith the Lord, this is thus thinketh Greg, okay? And I want to differentiate what is clearly we know biblical, and what we're, what we're kind of drawing out might be, okay? But, but I just wonder if part of it is, not, not of what Jesus wrote, but why, I wonder if part of it is he's diffusing the escalation. See, there's an angry mom, and, and, and I'm sure that they're screaming out, you know, stoner, stoner, others, oh, you know, 
And he just starts writing, and the attention draws away from the woman. And they're like, what's he writing? And it just starts to diffuse. It gives people time to reflect. That's wise, isn't it? We all struggle with this sometimes. When things are escalating, we ride the elevator up and we escalate with it, don't we? You know, Proverbs 29 says, a gentle answer can turn away wrath. And Jesus just creates time to reflect and de-escalates. But um, what does he write on the ground? Again, we have no idea. We don't know. But I just wonder, again, thinketh Greg, all right, is this. The word for write in the Greek text, remember this was originally written in the Greek language, is the word grapho. Okay, it's, it's, it's the word that comes into the English language as graphite. Grapho means write. But what's here is kata grapho. Kata means down or against. A literal translation might be, and Jesus wrote against on the ground. And you're like, that's kind of doubling it up. So it may just mean, okay, Jesus is writing against the ground. But I wonder, we don't know, I wonder if it's saying he's writing on the ground against the accusers. We don't know, but I just wonder. If so, I wonder if what Jesus is writing as the mob's watching is the commands that they have specifically broken. I wonder if he's writing, hmm, maybe with someone's name, maybe not. Remember that time you slapped your wife? Hey, uh, remember when you embezzled that money? You know that neighbor who's poor that you disdain and you walk by and you never do anything about? You know the time when you've gone to the Roman baths, which you know you're really not supposed to because the Hebrew people, it's nakedness, but remember those times you went to the Roman bath and you were watching? Remember that? You know, do you remember that racism you have against the Samaritans? Go ahead, then. Go ahead if, if, if you don't have any sin and throw the first stone. And this really calls us to understand what it means to lovingly confront people. Galatians chapter 6 says, If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore them gently. So do we lovingly confront or do we throw stones at people? But look at the response of the mob. Verse 9. Those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older first till only Jesus was left with the woman. The older first. I wonder, we don't know, but I wonder if that's because they got a lifetime more sins. Right? And I wonder if what they're maybe saying is, wait a minute, Jesus. Uh, stop writing. (laughs) Jesus, please stop writing that, guys, let's get out of here, right? And they start fleeing. And then the younger ones follow. And now it's just Jesus and the woman. And I believe, just just in, in my own viewing of this episode, that from the first time Jesus saw this woman, his goal was to disperse the crowd and minister to her. And it's amazing because... He has this personal encounter with you. And I believe Jesus wants to do the same thing with you and me. Whatever episode experiences of our life, Jesus really wants to just relate with you and me. He wants to whisper his love into your and my soul. He wants to reveal sometimes sin. So we'll address it and we'll change. Remember, the Spirit never convicts us to condemn us, but always to change us. He longs to whisper into our ears when we do repent, 
Remember, you're forgiven. I don't condemn you. I wonder if he longs to remind us of our identity in Christ. Remember your new identity. Quit, quit going back to that old stuff. This is who you are now in Christ. This is your new identity. May it be the loudest voice that we hear. And so then we come to really the, the, the conclusion and the zenith of this passage. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, she said. Well, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. So go now and leave your life of sin. Here's what's amazing. Jesus is the only person in the history of the planet who could have stoned her because he's perfect. He's also the only person on the planet who could have forgiven her. Because part of why he's still in public is eventually they're going to arrest him and he's going to be tortured and he's going to be nailed to the cross and he's going to atone for that woman's sins. He can forgive her because he took her sins on the cross. Wow. Only Jesus. In a fascinating book I read a few years ago, it's called The Day I Met Jesus. It's about a lot of different people in in the Gospels and, and kind of the moment that they met Jesus With this woman's story, this is what the author writes. My story began with a man who took advantage of me. My story ends with a man who rescued me. And so in John chapter 8, here's what's fascinating. Here's where the gospel envelops this. John chapter 8 begins with the Pharisees who want to stone a woman. If you go to the end of John chapter 8, this is where they're picking up stones and they're planning to stone Jesus. That's part of why I believe that this passage probably was originally in John 8, even though it's kind of abrupt. It just fits the movement of it powerfully. But, but the main point is, it goes from the Pharisees wanting to kill a woman, and now they want to kill Jesus. In some ways, that's our story. See, Satan's been wanting to throw stones at us. And Satan stands before Jesus and says, you know, you know that Greg Moselle, look at all this stuff that he's thought, that he's said, that he's done. And God has to say, yeah, you know what? <laughs> yeah, Greg, he's, he's human. There's some ways in which he's fallen to pray. He's, he, he's growing a lot, and my spirit's working with him. He has a long way to go. But you know, he's, he's on that journey. And Jesus steps in the way. And he says, I'll take those stones for Greg and for you. I'll take those on the cross upon myself. See, the movement of John chapter 8 is the gospel. It's so powerful. He steps in and he takes the wrath. So, who is this woman? I want to submit to us, we're this woman. And if you're offended right now, we're probably far away from God. Sorry about that. But we're really this woman. And here's why. We were condemned before God. Loved by God, but condemned because, I mean, we know ourselves, right? Right? You know, things that we've thought and said and the motives of our hearts, the things we've said to wound people, you know, whatever it is. And yet Jesus has rescued us. And Jesus has chased the mob. The mob, in this case, is Satan and all of his minions, and he's chased them away. And now we're with Jesus. Wow. Remember Romans 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
But the passage would be incomplete without the end when Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin. I wonder what the rest of this woman's story is. When you love someday, you know, in Egypt, they find some ancient manuscript on a, on, 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 on a scrap heap, and it's like, oh, here's what happened to the woman caught in adultery. We can read about it. But I don't think we're going to find that. And the reason is, I think it's purposely left open. Because we went, I wonder what happened to her. I wonder if this changed her life. I wonder if she ran back to her past. I wonder what happened. Because that's where we're left right now. It's open-ended. How will we respond to the story of the magnificent grace of Jesus? Will we just kind of go on with our everyday lives? Will we, will we go back to the past? Whether it's the shame or the sins or the guilt or whatever it is. Or will we recognize we've had an encounter with Jesus. He took the stones for us. We're now forgiven. May we now go as grateful recipients of God's grace, allowing God's Spirit to change us, to shape us more like Jesus. May it be so for us. And may we help each other on this journey of experiencing God's grace, challenging each other to become all that God calls us to be, and being the hands and feet and voice of Jesus in a fractured, wounded world where everyone matters to God. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you are interested in learning more about what we do here at FBC, please visit our website, fbcamers.org. Also, consider subscribing to this podcast so you can get a notification when our weekly sermons are posted. Again, thank you for listening to this podcast. Have a wonderful day.